Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. We're recording today from our new podcast studio. Louis is not with us today, but he'll be here next week talking about how to decrease 40 times and how to program your strength conditioning to achieve this. Today, I'm joined with John Quint, and we're going to talk to you today about training outside the groove in order to stimulate uh, tissues so that you increase the strength of the load-bearing capacity on them. John, welcome today. Hope you like the new studio we have here. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, first, I'm not sure if we ever did it in the other podcast, but I'd like to get a more um, detailed bio on you and what you actually do, if you yeah. wouldn't mind. Yeah, so I'm a manual therapist. I'm a neuromuscular therapist, so uh, I treat individuals, athletes <clears throat> that have pain, dysfunction, or want to optimize their performance. Uh, as far as certification-wise, the, the main thing I do is neuromuscular therapy, but I do what's called functional range release, or FR release, and then there's a training component to that, which is called functional range conditioning. Uh, so the main thing, that I'm a neuromuscular therapist, uh, but I do functional range release as far as manual therapy. And is there any common things that you see with athletes coming in? We just had the... Uh University of Akron's football strength conditioning staff come in and I was telling them the importance of assessing uh, internal external rotation on hip joints and the importance of Function in the joints and how that uh, proper function dictates proper movement I wonder could you elaborate on that and just tell coaches and all our followers out there how important that is Yeah, so <clears throat> joint health or articular health is is essential um, the main thing that I do is I do work on joints because I work on a lot of uh, athletes, but I also work on a lot of bodybuilders, powerlifters, stuff like that. And <clears throat> uh, basically um, what happens is um, over time people start to lose joint function, but they don't notice it. So that's the reason why the assessment is so important because we can assess the actual articular ca uh, capacity of that joint. And so when you're talking about the hip joint and assessing internal external rotation, the reason why that's so important is because it's a ball and socket joint. And what a ball does relative to a socket <clears throat> is it rotates. So if you put someone on a table, you lie them down and you test their internal rotation and they have no rotation, they have very poor bone motion, mm -hmm. right? So when you talk about a groove, they're going right into a groove. So whatever passive range of motion that they have, right, their active is probably going to be a little bit less than that. Meaning if I can't take, so when we look at a joint, the definition of a joint or an articulation is uh, bones that articulate to one another. Now with a functioning joint, you want to see disassociation. So you want to be able to move one bone relative to the other bone. Okay. And passive meaning the practitioner. So like me would be able to rotate one bone relative to the other bone. Now, however, how many, however many degrees of freedom is in that, is the amount they're going to have less active range, right? So if we see like five degrees of internal rotation, we know that everything that they do, you're, they really only have five degrees of bone motion in that joint. So you're going to see where they're going to start to go into a, what we call here a groove training or an attractor state where when they use that hip joint, they're only using that five degrees of bone motion, meaning that the rest of the degrees that they could capture, they're not activating from a joint perspective, but then from the articulating tissue around it, they're not, they're not able to train. So we can go in there by uh, capturing more uh, active range of motion via treatment, then their training is automatically going to get better because now they have access to new tissue that they haven't been loading. Does that make yeah. sense? Sure does. From 
how does an athlete basically acquire a shitty hip joint? Because when we're born, we don't have, unless it's a defect, but normally we would not have um, crap function in our joints. Our joints should all move around perfectly. How does that happen over? Is it through proper or improper training or just through normal wear and tear or playing sports? Yeah, it's going to be a combination of all of the above. Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> now, the big thing that happens is uh, it kind of gets uh, complicated. Um, but if we want to test true bone motion, if we want to test the capsule in a ball and socket joint, we have to internally rotate it because the rate-limiting tissue that's going to limit internal rotation in a ball and socket joint is the capsule. And the capsule is the connective tissue that articulates one bone to the other bone, which forms the synovial capsule. Um, <clears throat> that's the reason why it's hard for people to see, but if you go to internally rotate a bone and there's no bone motion, that's like, like when you see someone actually and you go to rotate them and let's say that like they have that five degrees, that's literally how much of the articular tissue that they're able to load. So this is why you see lifters degenerate their joints because in that five degrees, they're constantly loading it. So it doesn't matter if they're squatting, if they're pulling, whatever they're doing, running track, field, et cetera. They're only accessing that degrees. And then in the other degrees, we know what happens because there's no stressors in there, that basically that tissue starts to atrophy because you don't get legitimate bone motion, right? There's no circulation in there or there's lack of circulation. So you'll get increased fluid, which also uh, leads to osteoarthritis and all that other stuff. So <clears throat> to get back to answering your question, I don't think it's one thing in particular. Mm -hmm. It's a multitude of things. But then the main thing that people don't do is they don't take the joint into internal rotation and train internal rotation like we would do here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because you can that, – that tissue is limited, but that doesn't mean that you can't go in there and expand that range of motion. And then once they start to acquire that range of motion, let's say it goes from 5, five to 10, 10 to 15, and then you go into your general training, so your squats, your deadlifts, all that other stuff, now they have access to that joint. So it's kind of like the conjugate system where they add variability to the joint. Mm -hmm. So that variability decreases repetition, right? It gives the body more ways to come up with solutions to accomplish those tasks, right? Because if you have five degrees of freedom in the joint, right, of actual bone motion, meaning when we can only rotate that bone, right, so it has to be someone else doing the assessment on you passively, right, that means that they're only accessing that range when they train, right, so you can see how repetitive strain injuries occur because it's the same thing, you know, the joint allows you access to the other articulating tissue, but if that's limited, you're not accessing that other articulating tissue, right, so then they're not training it. Right. So then we go back to there's no stressors coming into the system. So then, you know, from a neurological perspective, what happens to those ranges is the central nervous system starts to prune them. It doesn't even realize that it exists in its cortico mapping. Mm -hmm. Right. And then from a structural standpoint, so that's the functional standpoint, from a structural standpoint, those tissues are going to begin to atrophy because they're not used to it. Mm -hmm. So you can see, and that's the reason why the athletes that we work with, Right When we start to acquire more active range of motion, their training really starts to take off because now I get them, I specifically get them to acquire more of a joint, then you train and load that joint, and it's this basically this, uh, this continuum that starts a systematic effect where now everything that they're doing with that joint, they're going to do better because they have a better joint to do it with. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if they're squatting, deadlifting, 
uh, or if they're out there and they're wide receiver running routes. Mm -hmm. They have more variability, which automatically reduces the risk of repetitive strain, which is uh, very uh, it, it's very prevalent not only in weight training but in other sports, track and field, uh, football, et cetera. Well, even if, if you have a, a crap hip or a non-functioning hip joint, even something simple as walking, everything, you by freeing that up, walking is not going to be degenerating your, uh, your ball and socket joint in there. I, these little things, and from our point of view, and I tell everyone that comes in here, when, um, when we get athletes, especially a lot of pro athletes, before we touch them, though, we'll send them to you so you can actually do an assessment. And if, a, if there's a treatment, if there's a protocol needs for treatment, we do it because from a strength coach's point of view, we all know we're on the firing line every day of the week. When a team does, does good, the team does good. When someone does bad, it goes back to the strength coach. But um, we don't want to get someone injured in the weight room. But if we can't see improper joint function, it's a, it's a ticking time bomb. Something is going to happen either on the field or in the weight room. But if we can get this assessment done or we can get uh, function back in the joints, it makes our jobs easier and safer and better for the athlete. And I think it's hugely overlooked. I, I overlooked it for many years, just, just trying to be 100% in the weight room, strength conditioning only. But um, we've seen phenomenal results in the two to three weeks, even on the next day when they come in because they've acquired new ranges of motion. Right. And see, that's the thing is, like, when you start to get into the better athletes, like, you know, one of the guys that we're working with now, you know, he's he had a hip impingement for over six years, mm -hmm. right? So the better the athlete, the better they're able to compensate, and you can't really see it if you're a strength coach, right? Now, you were able to see that he had something wrong with his hip mm -hmm. and send him over to me, but – what happens is as they reach higher levels, they get better at compensating, right? Mm -hmm. And that compensation, eventually, it's gonna, uh, they're gonna, it's gonna be either a repetitive strain injury, something where they can't come back, or it's gonna be an acute injury. And that's the tricky part. That's the reason why it all goes back to the actual assessment and actually seeing, instead of assuming what's going on, put them on the table, see what's going on, see where they lack capacity, and then challenge the system where they lack capacity so that it starts to add capacity to, to the to the specific areas that you want. So we got an athlete, we sent him to you, uh, you diagnose okay, non-functioning hip joint. How long is it until you can regain further ranges of motion? So, and is this something that needs to be, they need to see you every day, every week, or is this something that can be treated um, pretty quickly and effectively? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it all depends on the individual, the level of dysfunction, all that other stuff. But just generally speaking, uh, with the athletes that you and I work with, it's actually rather easy. Uh, so I don't have to treat them as much because of the communication between me and you. And you know what, uh, you know what I'm doing. I don't. I know what you're doing from yep. a perspective. I don't really have to delve into it because I trust you. Um, but what will happen is when you start to challenge the system, um, the system as far as, and when I mean challenge the system, so let's say that you lack internal rotation, take the joint to its perceived end range, range of motion, and then isometrically load that range. What's going to happen is function out, the, the function of the joint will instantly start to, uh, uh, you'll start to acquire more range, generally speaking, mm -hmm. right? Now, what will happen is that functional adaptation will generally stay, but you're going to have to, it, it, just like working out one time, you know, you're not going to build strength working out one time. It's the cumulative effect, mm -hmm. 
Right. But the thing is, what we know is if you actively acquire that range of motion, that means that it registers in your cortical mapping, which means that then, so let's say that they go from five degrees of internal rotation to 15, and then they go and, they, and, and then you train them. We already know that because they had to actively acquire that range, that what's going to happen is they're going to be using that range. Mm -hmm. So that's where it's that continuum. So each time I see them, they already have, we're starting at a better point. Does that make sense? Until eventually the joint meets the prerequisites of whatever said joint is, and then we can start to move on and figure out other areas that we can start to add capacity to, to better enable that athlete to succeed. Mm. Yeah. That's a, that's a big thing. And for us then, well, when we talk, we're talking about a lot more than we, we ever have, but we're seeing more and more injuries that shouldn't happen that occur simply because the tissues weren't allowed to be trained in those given ranges of motion. And from a strength and conditioning point of view, if we can strengthen tissues that have never been strengthened before, we have just reduced the risk of injury tremendously. Right. And like th there is some, uh, in professional sports, especially contact uh, oriented sports, um, you're gonna be, you got a given groove or a given set that you know uh, playing football, um, you got your routes, you got everything you got to play, but something's going to occur abruptly. And when that ab abrupt force comes against you, someone hitting you, someone tackling you, you cutting, changing angles, and you haven't stressed that uh, these tissues or the muscles are in these given ranges of motion, the force that you can generate or someone can generate against you is going to be the difference or it's going to be something dramatic. So if, if you can't, um, if you haven't built up the tolerances against that, as we said, that's going to be the difference between a grade three rupture or a grade one strain. Right. We'll take a grade one strain any day of the week over because injuries are going to happen in right. professional sports. It's it's going to happen. Right. We're in the business of injury mitigation. Exactly. Because if you're trying to push the thresholds, you're going to find where the thresholds are. So it's best that you start to bulletproof those ranges as much as you can. Now, it's interesting what you said. When I do an assessment, and we see a restricted range, and I tell them, hey, the joint technically should rotate to here, right? I automatically tell those individuals that we know within the restricted ranges, none of those tissues have capacity because you haven't loaded them. So if you're in a contact sport, right, what happens is now someone can take you into that range that you didn't train, and chances are that's where the injury is going to occur. It's not going to occur in the ranges that you're training unless it's repetitive. These acute injuries, you know, when you don't see a joint that rotates how it should, the injury, chances are, if it comes from an acute perspective, is going to be in the ranges that you don't actively have, but the joint gets taken into that range, and then that the tissue fails within that range. How many surgeries could be avoided by looking into this, do you think? A lot. You think that this this goes undiagnosed a lot of the time? One hundred percent. Because let's say that let's say that okay, let's say like today I had three cases of uh, SI joint pain, so sacroiliac pain. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's where your tailbone meets your pelvis on the backside. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's say that someone has SI joint pain and they say, hey, you know, we want to do a fusion at L five S one or some sort of procedure at L five S one, right? Okay, well, that's you can't look at the body like that. You have to go in and you got to say, okay, well, why is the SI joint, why is it, ha it's probably having to compensate for something. So then if you test the joint below it, which is the hip joint, which is designed to have a ton of range of motion, and you test that joint and has no motion, 
we automatically know that that, that, that joint isn't functioning. So is the SI joint in dysfunction because of a, the, the individual lacks a hip joint? And so now the SI joint, that individual is having to pick their leg up and walk it instead of being able to have that ball glide in the joint. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. It's the, it's the same thing. I mean, if you see degenerative stuff in your joint and you test the joint and the joint has no motion, are you surprised that it's degenerating? Well, no, you're not stressing any of the, any of the tissues within the joint. So yeah, it's going to atrophy. You're going to see degenerative changes, right? I mean, what would be interesting would be to have someone do an MRI or some sort of imaging like that and then have them actually train that joint to see if, the, if you get any changes in the tissue. And you will probably, I mean, you're going to get changes in the tissue, right? It's the same thing that we were talking about before this podcast started, right? Whereas it's like, you know, so let's say you tear a tissue, tissue but you have really poor arthrokinematics. Well, you may not have the pain from the tissue if it's a complete tear. You may have pain from the improper arthrokinematics, which probably tore the tissue, mm -hmm. Right, so then it goes back to it's really important to do the assessment, right? Because any joint, I don't care who it is, if you really assess the joint and constrain the joint and force it to function, you're gonna find dysfunction. So it's the therapist's job to find the dysfunction, then constrain the joint where the dysfunction is and start to load that joint in whichever way is, in whatever way you want to. I mean, the what I use is I use isometrics. I use the, I'm, I'm an FR provider, so I use what's called pales, and or rails, which is progressive angular isometric loading or regressive angular isometric loading. So it's loading and then combining that with other sorts of um, soft tissue therapy uh, to basically increase the capacity of that joint, if that makes sense. Yeah. So if, um, can you take us through an assessment? So an athlete comes in, like how do you actually assess from just say their, their first visit into you? They've, they've, they've been referred in, um, even without a suspicion, they're just going into you just for... Yeah, so if it's just a general athlete, the main joints that I initially test just because of time constraints is going to be the shoulder joint and the uh, hip joint. That's why in the West Side Seminars, those are the two joints that, that we uh, focus on the most because if you're doing a bench press, you're, you have to have high-functioning shoulder joints. That's basically required in order for that lift to go well. And then for a squat and a deadlift, especially the box squat, you need to have high functioning hips. So if you refer me over, you know, someone in the league, the first thing that I'm going to do is assess to make sure because I know that you're using those main components or those main lifts or some variation of those lifts. I know that those are the main joints that they need. So I go in and I assess those joints to make sure that, that those joints have capacity. And then if they don't, you know, I'll say, hey, you know, uh, pre-training, make sure you're working this guy's internal rotation, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. But the main thing that I do is I just simply assess the joint in a passive setting because I know that if I can't move one bone independently of the other bone, that individual can't actively move that bone more, right? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? And so then that's when we go in there and we really start to challenge the system to start to enhance the range of motion because what – practitioners will find out is the first range of motion that the joint is at isn't generally its true range of motion. That's just how much the central nervous system is willing to give you. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why when you do, uh, when you do like, let's say a pales contraction, um, it's going to have multiple benefits. It's going to strengthen the tissue from a structural perspective, 
But from a functional perspective, what it's going to do is it's going to allow the central nervous system to function in that specific range, which should start to decrease tone. Now, that's one of the goals of the pails, but the pails, the main goal of the pails in my in, in, in what I do is to start to strengthen those ranges, to start to increase capacity, to see how much we can load this joint, to see what its general capacity is. And then from there, figure out a hierarchy of how I can get that joint to meet the prerequisites where it can isometrically load at end range at 80%. That individual can take the joint there uh, to full uh, uh, end range. Right, so I have certain prerequisites, right? So it's a hierarchy. First is to kind of expand that range of motion actively. Mm -hmm. Then what, what I'll do is I have them do almost like a, a quasi-isometric, where then they're starting to groove that joint and rotate that joint, right? So it's almost like a training perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah. But see, I'm fortunate where on the back end, I have you to train them, so I don't really have to worry about the training component at all. Mm -hmm. I just know that in order for them to, to, to get the most out of a deadlift or a squat, they need high-functioning hip joints. Mm -hmm. And I know that if they don't have those high-functioning hip joints and you're, you're training them, that they're not going to get the most out of that, that, that movement, mm -hmm. right? So that's the main so, – so when it comes to assessing lifters or any athletes, I always start with the hip joint and the um, – generally the hip joint and the uh, shoulder joints and try and uh, increase the functionality of those joints. So between all the, um, we work with a pretty wide range of athletes from, we, we've got bobsledders, um, league players, hockey players. Is there common denominators across the board? So the athletes you come in, can you just say even just rule of thumb that there's more likely going to be an issue in the hip or is there something that you see through every sport? Uh, I would say that the hips are the main thing that I see people missing, which is shocking because like some of the guys in the league that play, wide receiver, right? These guys are very explosive. And to me, I mean, it'll be interesting to see them play this year. I know the one guy that came back, he already said that the owner said, wow, you look a lot better, right? One, because now he doesn't have a hip impingement trying to run routes. But um, the uh, what was the question? I totally forgot. A common denominators between different sports and um – just the capacity issues. Yeah, so I see what people, like what you term as groove training, what I would term as attractor states, where people just keep going back to the same thing. And instead of adding variability to training, they add repetition to training. And that repetition starts to close the joints down even more. So they're just doing the same things over and over again. That's one of the great things about the uh, ATP is the athletic training platform, which is the formerly known as the belt squat, yeah. but is now the, okay. Yeah, so, you know, when you're having guys in there, right, that's the exact opposite of an attractor state or groove training because now they're starting to go everywhere, right? And now what happens is whatever uh, mobility uh, they have captured through treatment, they're now starting to load in a functional setting, right? So you wouldn't con I, I wouldn't consider what I do technically functional, mm -hmm. right? Meaning, yeah, there's going to be carryover, but you – there's not going to be as much carryover as it would be if they were, you know, feet on the ground in the actual setting that they're playing the game in, right? So uh, machines like that allow for uh, you to really start to not just optimize, but now train the newly acquired ranges, which should then functionally transfer over to whatever that sport that individual has. Does that yep. make sense? 100%. Um, how did you get into this? 
I mean, it's because I've known you for a while, and even I see you're like us. You're constantly evolving um, because sports evolves, athletes evolve. But when did you really start to, not to move to, I know you're always into it, but to go towards the system of uh, assessment you're doing? Yeah, um, just because um, there's no guessing involved. So a lot of people will look at stuff and they'll say, okay, well, I think this is happening and that's happening. And instead of guessing, I just go in there and I say, this is what it is. There's no guessing to it. And then that puts me in a position where, you know, it's like, it's like the same stuff that you do here for assessment, but you're, but you're doing an assessment for, for exercises to start to see how posterior chain responds to this stimulus, mm-hmm. right, all that. So basically I wanted to take the guessworking out of it and just see what exactly is the joint doing in the articulating tissues of that joint because the joint is where the motion is designed to occur. So if we go back to that hip joint, the individual has SI joint issue, I know if I can't move that hip joint, that individual can't move that hip joint, which means that they're probably having to move their SI joint because of a dysfunctional hip joint. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to is really, is it an SI joint issue? Well, I don't know. But what I do know is I'll assess the hip, treat the hip, then see how the hip function is in relation to to their pain. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so the main reason why I'm very keen on the assessment is just I don't want to guess. And the other thing that I think that happens a lot, especially in the manual therapy field and really in the training field too, right, is people don't have indicators to know whether or not the individual's improving, right? So if you're working with a high-level athlete, they want to know whether they're getting better or not. And this creates an, a setting where the athlete can see progress, right, starts to build onto that. So they feel better. Now they're seeing progress. It's a way, you know, hey, we're isometric. We used to – we couldn't go into this range. Now we can go into this range. We can load at 40% and you don't have pain, mm-hmm. right? Then see them maybe a couple of days later. Hey, now we can start to load at 60%, no pain. So you can see where there's a progression, right, because it's very hard for people to see this stuff already – that don't have a background in it or don't have access to it. But when it comes to the athlete or even the general day person, if you want them to be consistent with what they're doing, they have to see some sort of progress. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why you guys keep all your numbers, right? Well, I have to do the same thing as a manual therapist. I have to know where that joint was before, how it felt to the individual, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so basically when you're assessing all this stuff, you're building the actual profile of what that individual is today and to see whether or not it's improving or, or not improving. Because if it's not improving, chances are the inputs that you're getting it aren't correct and you need to reassess really quickly and go down a different course. Have you ever encountered when you're working with athletes that there's been such a huge dysfunction or um, lack of capacity issue that the, just say, and we're talking about the hip joint a lot, but it's a very, very important joint that it's been damaged beyond the point of no repair, that they have worn away that joint to where regardless of what you do, you might be able to f- regain some capacity, some ranges, but to where, sorry, you've just done too much damage. Yeah, 100%. And it's, it's probably how long is a piece of string, but is there a timeline to where it could take a joint to completely erode itself? Is there... Yeah, it all depends. It depends on what you're doing. I mean, because think about it. You got guys that say, hey, I train max effort, but, you know, they're squatting 315. Yeah. Right? But then you got guys here that saying, like, hey, I just squatted 920. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's all different. That's the reason why it's like the higher you go up in numbers, right, or the more load that you're using, right, the more important it is to have a, a functioning joint 
that's going to be able to uh, dissolve some of that energy, right? So that you have variability in the joint. That's the big thing. That's all the conjugate method is from a training perspective, mm -hmm. right? It's just adding variability in there so that you get rid of the repetition of doing things over and over again, right? So that you can increase capacity, right? Yep. So it's like from a treatment perspective, I just take the same principles from conjugate and instead of, instead of training, it's treatment. I get you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I like the way we talked about um, the load put in the body. A big thing that we see is it's very easy to uh, to explain to people load in terms of weights because you can physically see 500 pounds, 600 pounds, 1,000 pounds on a bar. You might realize how heavy it is, but you can see it. When you deal with sprinters or anyone who sprints, you have this um, unseen forces going to the body. And if you break down someone like uh, don't quote me on these numbers, but Usain Bolt, he's going to take an average 41 steps and 100 meters and is going to be putting out about 1,000 pounds of force per step. That's a huge amount of force to go on the body. And if you don't have correct capacity or, or correct movement in your joints or correct capacity or be able to take capacity in it, then you're at risk to humongous injuries. And that, that ball and soccer could be wearing down every step you take. Exactly, 100%. And see, that's the thing. When you ask me, well, how, how do I know? I just put them on the table and I just assess it, and it is what it is. You know, the assessment doesn't lie. Yeah. Just like a powerlifting meet isn't going to lie. You're either here or you're there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's uh, and because the body, being the organism, an organism it is, is going to um, reroute itself to the path of least resistance. So if you have... Um, any dysfunction, it doesn't care. It, it's going to keep on doing what it's doing. It's going to find all these different pathways around which you're going to think you're moving correctly, but as we know, you're not. And from working with you and strength coaches in general, um, this has made my job way easier and a lot safer. And by easier, I mean I know that if they've got, if I know they've got correct function, I can do a lot more with them in a safer environment. But just by restoring function, their performance already has increased. And we're in the job, outside of powerlifting, but when we work with athletes, we're trying to make athletes, athletes more athletic. If we're not making athletes more athletic or increasing the performance in the field, then we've failed. Uh, absolute strength, increasing that is huge. Increasing different strengths is huge. But if we're not benefiting their performance on the field, then we're failing as strength coaches. And that's why I think this is an important thing to talk about and plus, we are strength coaches. We are not therapists. And I think we, as The Rock says, know your role. We have to know our role in the gym and in how to train athletes. And we, that there are some tricks, and I do a very rough just test of internal and external rotation. But if I know that they're screwed up, I'm like, you're going to see John before I do anything. And I think as strength coaches, we have to know our limits and step back and let people like you step in. But, and that's another problem, there's not many people who see the way you see things. And I'd imagine uh, Dr. Spina is the same and people along that line is where yeah. people just don't, they don't know what they don't know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 100, you're 100% right. You don't know what you don't know. And so that's the, that's the main, so the main thing that I do is I do FR release, which is taught by Dr. Shivers, who I consider my mentor, and then uh, Dr. Spina as well. Dr. Spina is, he's also a therapist. 
but he teaches more of the training component, whereas mm-hmm. Shivers is going to teach more of the actual hands-on yep. manual therapy. And that's the thing. It's just like the West Side system. It's a thought process. So it's like, yeah, they have a they have a system of weighing uh, of how to do things. It's very organized. It's all principled, right? There's no guesswork, right? It's all backed by principles, but it's how you apply the 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 system, you know, in your own way. Um, uh, I can't remember what I was gonna say. Oh, but uh, yeah. So when it goes back to what I try to do. Uh, when you were just saying that, it's like, so you got to figure you got to sled drag or s- enter that movement. That movement needs to have certain components functioning, right? And that's all that you want is those components. So from a treatment perspective, if we Im- improve the function of each component, then you should, as a whole, generally speaking, improve that lift or exercise or movement. So it's very simple, right? But it's a process. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, just to bring up a... If you will, a case study. We we had, and there's a few athletes like this, that um, they've had back pain for the vast majority of their professional careers, and we touched on this at the start of the podcast. Um, we had, a, and there's, there's two athletes in particular. And they had um, lower back pain, and they came into me, and I'm like, okay, and I put them through our assessments here, through the machines and through various maxes, and I'm like, well, you've got an incredibly weak lower back, and um, we we went test. We did some good mornings, and they were struggling with any about ninety pounds, which is not great for a male athlete and a D one athlete. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to strengthen your lower back, and we strengthened their stomach too. Again, uh, leverage is huge. You want to get a stronger stomach, stronger hamstrings, and uh, back got stronger, but pain didn't decrease. And I'm like, there's something there's something not right here. Um, so we kept training, kept training. Performance increased, did great, but the pain was still there. And then they went to you, and then we, by by your assessment, they had zero, zero hip function. The hip was not doing anything, and everything was going back into the tailbone or the SI joint. And as soon as you got capacity back in there, the pain went away, but the central nervous system was able to release, and I was able to actually achieve a lot more, where the performance went up way more than anything I could do in a short space of time. So in a space of a week, the CNS capacity increased so much just by that one thing. And this is something that coaches, you have to understand and implement because the central nervous system is the be-all and end-all for us. And we want to stimulate that and we want to have that uh, work in a full capacity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're 100% right. So, I mean, the central nervous system, so... I mean, just basic uh, physiology is the central nervous system is what governs the motor units, Mm -hmm. which is the motor unit is all the fibers that that neuron uh, innervates. And if you have pain, you're not going to get maximal activation due to that pain. So pain in of itself is not good. It's just like all the time. I mean, we'll get uh, some people that will say, hey, you know, I tried doing the reverse hyper, but I get this pinching in my back, in my low back, right? Well, it's because your spine doesn't segment. It's not because the machine is harmful. It, you don't have the prerequisites for that machine. Thus, it's not going to be a good match, right? But yep. people that have high-functioning backs use the reverse hyper, and they use it with a shit ton of weight. Yeah, You know what I mean? So um, it, it goes back to individuals need to – if you're a strength coach, you need to see it from a component perspective. 
And you need to ask yourself, if I'm having an athlete that's not getting better, right? Because, I mean, you're, you're an athlete. A lot of people don't know this either. You, I mean, how many powerlifters do you train? Okay, so you train predominantly athletes, tons of fighters, guys in the NFL, uh, bobsled, all sort. It's all demographics of stuff, right? Correct. Okay, so, so these athletes they need both general and specific, right? So the general training is the stuff that you're doing, mm-hmm. right? You're using big compound movement movements that are going to get massive CNS output, right? Which is going to make them strong. But in order to do those, they need the components. That's the more specialized stuff that I do, where I break it down simpler to that, right? And then just start to challenge those joints. But a lot of people think that West Side is just powerlifting when there's a lot more athletes here than there are powerlifters, mm-hmm. right? And the reason why is because you guys are able to, to apply basic biological training principles, and it's regardless of sport. Right, it just you. It goes back to you know the same thing we were talking about. Fr, uh, uh, it's a thought process, and then that thought process is very principled. So it follows biological principles. So it's universal. Mm-hmm. You just change it case dependent. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think that's the big misconception here at Westside that Westside is just powerlifting. When Westside is, it's 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 the athletic edu- development. It's like you said, it's strength and special strength development. It's an education. It's a foundation for. And that's what I think, and you're seeing now more and more people are becoming conjugate experts, and they're coming out with their own version of percentages. But if you trace it all back, it all comes back to Louis, and even Louis's research. If you truly delve in deep into it, and I think I was talking, I think it was Dave Tate about a couple of months back on that, that Louis is the really one who pioneered conjugate. There's not a whole lot wrote about it. Berkoshansky Malsev touched upon it, but Louis really, through his research. And his interpretation of this has come up with, with what we consider the, the conjugate method or the, the West Side conjugate method, whatever you want to call it. It all comes from the same place. And even when you talk about the compound movements, that's a big thing. People think we just do all compound, but 20% of our movements is compound movements. 80% is in the special exercises. And that's where we train outside the groove. Again, if you keep doing compound movements, it's like a chain. A chain is only as strong as the weakest link. If you don't train that weak link, it's going to break. Um, but strength and conditioning is not the be-all and end-all. It's, it's a big piece of pie here, and we all have a slice that we got to work on. And what you do is equally as an important slice as mine because it goes back to injury mitigation. If an athlete is injured, none of us are going to get have work. It's simple as that. Right. And coming back to that, as an athlete, how do you know if you got a shippy hip, hip joint? Like, how do you know is it working optimally? Like, if... Is there anything that you could give to athletes to go, well, I think I've got good hips or I think I've got good spine mobility. Is there any, anywhere that they can look? Or is there anywhere they can see these prerequisites that they could test themselves? Well, maybe I actually need to improve upon this. Right. Yeah, and see, that's the thing. Like, that, that's, a, that's very good because it goes back to, I mean, you know, in working with these, with these, these guys, they're athletes. They're not strength coaches. They're not therapists. So mm-hmm. they don't know. Mm-hmm. And you can't assume that because they played at this university or because they're with this franchise that that university and that franchise has someone that's qualified to assess them and or train them. Because as we know, we wouldn't be in business if that was the case. Correct. Right? Does that make sense? And so when you said it's all about the education, it is about the education and breaking it down into chunks. So 
uh, <clears throat> so that they understand why they're doing it, so that they buy into what they're doing, so that they're successful at what they're doing. Um, as far as testing for the 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 pre, uh, you know, to see if you have the actual joint capacity. Realistically, the only way if you want true a true test to see what one bone is doing relative to another bone, it has to be in a passive setting. And then you want to compare that passive setting to that individual's active setting. And then what you'll see is generally that individual is going to have much less active range than they do passive range. So your objective is to start to narrow that gap. Mm -hmm. So whatever range that they have is an active range. Right? Because if they don't have, if they can't actively take it there, but the bone can go there, now you have a range that, guess what? They don't really have a lot of control over. So this is this is where we start to get into the different debates of flexibility and mobility, right? Mm -hmm. Spina's got a good quote where he says that a joint can never be too mobile, but it can be too flexible because flexible flexibility is is a it's passive, right? Mobility means that you've took yourself there. So it's like the fighters that you send me. I do no flexibility work whatsoever. I mean, realistically, I don't do technically flexibility work yeah. with anyone, right? But think about that. If you, if you, let's say that you gave an athlete, which never technically happens, but let's say that, that you're able to, to, to stretch an individual out with no activation on their part. They don't have to do any work. Thus, they haven't acquired anything. There's not really a true stressor. And then they gain maybe five to 10 degrees of, of motion. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, now let's say that they go to load that. So now you go and you load them up on a squat, and they're doing max effort that day. Well, guess what? You've probably increased the – you can do harm to the athlete by that. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so so the good part is um, uh, if, we, if I go back to my background, so the main thing that I do is functional range release. They came out with a functional range assessment which starts to be able to, so that you can start to assess the articulations like what you're talking about, which adds very useful information to whoever's in charge of that actual training program. Does that make sense? But yeah. realistically, you, you, I wish that there was an easier way that you could do it, but you really can't. And that's the hard part because I work with a decent amount of people online. And so it's hard to actually see the passive versus active but just because you can't see the passive versus active doesn't mean that you can't see where one bone can't disassociate from another bone. Mm -hmm. So when I mean disassociation, uh, like we should probably post some sort of video about it, right? But like, for instance, so let's go back to the SI joint, right? Mm -hmm. so, the, so what you should see is I should be able to passively rotate the hip joint to 90 degrees before we start to get some sort of pelvic motion, mm -hmm. Right, but what you'll see on a lot of these guys that have all sorts of issues in the in the low back, uh, or females too, doesn't matter. Um, uh, what you'll see is as that maybe rotates to thirty degrees, now you're going to start to see some premature motion at the in the in the actual hit of the pelvis, right? So now we know that we're hey, guess what? We're probably having some sort of impingement because this is a dysfunctional joint. Mm -hmm. Then you go back and you can start to trace that joint. Hey, does this is this where your pain is along this joint? Yes, that's where the pain is. Okay, so it goes back to, well, the pain is more than likely there because you don't have a hip joint that can fully rotate up into flexion with a straight leg at 90 degrees. And what happens as at, let's say, 40 degrees is now legit bone motion doesn't occur in the hip joint anymore. Now you're seeing a pelvis rotate up, mm -hmm. and that's what's causing the pain. So then what do you do for that? Well, you got to lock the you got to constrain the joint into that range and have it start to function in that range and start to get true disassociation. 
where what happens is on the table, that individual's pelvis remains there, but we can rotate the ball relative to that, pay, to that, that uh, the uh, pelvis, right? And then what we do is it's not good enough just to get that. Now we have to start to train it and have that individual be able to keep one. So basically fire the pelvis and maintain that pelvis where it's at while they start to move the hip relative to that. That is, that is a true functioning articulation where the bone isn't restricted on either side and that individual can actively take it in and out of that range, right? Mm -hmm. So you can see where it's, it's just like your guys' training. It's very principled. Mm -hmm. Those principles go to – so that hip joint is no different than, uh, the, than the shoulder joint. I mean, it is structurally different, but the structure is the same, right? It's still the ball – the hip joint, the ball is actually in an actual socket, so there's less range. And when you go up to the shoulder joint, it's a ball that articulates with the shoulder blade, so there's a lot more range. But the arthrokinematics of what that joint does is the same, right? So those principles will start to transfer over, just like your guys' principles for training upper and lower body are going to transfer over as well. How important is it for me to bring in, outside of the joint training, we do isometric loading for the joints? Just 100%. Because there's so much stuff that the isometric loading does. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just the strength act. You know, you're having the central nervous system function in a specific range, right? And then it deems that range safe, which then makes that range usable, right? So instantly. So that's why I was just explaining to a lifter uh, just before I got here. I was working on his shoulder joint, <clears throat> and he was asking why I wasn't focusing technically on his or on his. Uh, you know, the articulating soft tissue and why I was so focused on seeing what this joint was doing. And I told him, well, because the motion is designed to occur there. And if there is no motion there, guess what? You're not training your bicep in that ranges. You're not training your tricep in that ranges. That joint is constrained. The only way to get that joint to open up is to start to isometrically load it right from an active setting. Because let's say that you just do some sort of joint mobilization. That was passive. It doesn't register in the central nervous system. Right, so you don't get all of the all of the effects. What happens is the isometrics are going to open up a functional window to where that joint has more function. So then, let's say that the I mean, this is literally all I do. So that so I create more functionality in a joint, more actual active usable ranges of motion, right? But that's not good enough because now there has to be structural adaptation that has to occur, which can only occur through training, right? But then what they do is they take that increased function and then they're handed over to you. And now what happens is that's where the true structural adaptations start to happen because those require a lot more longer mechanisms of function, right? Not just the central nervous system saying, okay, this range is safe. We'll allow you to have this range. We're talking about adaptations that occur as far as building more tissue, actual density, capacity, et cetera, all that stuff. That's a lot longer term. It needs nutrients, right? It needs all sorts of stuff. <clears throat> so basically what I do is I increase the function of them, right? Then you increase the structure of those, of those articulations. So that's where it's a continuum of process where they get better when they see me, they get better when they see you. You're more of a general setting, mm -hmm. right? I'm more of a specific setting. Mm -hmm. But in order to really optimize the general, you need to first have the specific. I agree 100%. Does that make sense? Um. From my point of view, and I think, that sadly, we're under time constraints. Like, we might have 45 minutes to an hour to train an athlete, but that doesn't mean we can't prescribe them 
exercise to execute at home. And that that's one thing that we might not do the best job on conveying is how much joint work we do um, for tendon ligament development because we do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reps for these because 10 or 12 reps won't cut it because of very poor blood supply to uh, ligaments and tendons. But isometric joint loading is something that we have really brought in in the, the last year a whole lot more than anything. Um, but to do them correctly, you don't want to be in a rush because you have to lock in the joints and you have to go through different ranges of motion. And you got to find points of that joint where you're weak at, like where you have to build up the capacity to where we've, um, we actually had a Dr. Larry Van Such came up and he showed us some movements for the hip joints. And he's a very, very interesting uh, person. He's like 10, 15 minutes from here. didn't even know about him. So we talked to Star Gagan, but he was talking about um, anti or clockwise, anti-clockwise torques when you're sprinting and um, how people they might train two or three things for the hips when you might have seven things that you should look at. And he went through loading. But I think um, as strength coaches, we have to learn to delegate, especially to professional athletes. Uh, professional athletes are professionals for a reason. And if they don't want to develop themselves, 99% of them will. They want to know. They want to learn. They don't want to. They want. They don't want a very technical rundown. They want the basics. You got to do A, B, C, and D. This is why it's going to help your performance. And I think as coaches, we got to get better at prescribing to them to do more stuff at home rather than try to keep everything under our watchful eye in the gym. Yeah, and that's the same thing. Even like you know, when I start some the athletes that I work with in conjunction with you, I always ask, "Hey, how's your training going?" Right. Mm -hmm. And they go, good. I was doing this and now I'm at that. So you can see all these measurables, right, yeah. which lets them buy in. And I know that if I, you know, increase, you know, my hamstring uh, or this lift or that lift, it's going to transfer over my sled drag time. Right. So they have all these measurables. Well, you got to do the same thing in treatment. Right. And it's the same thing where, like you said, it's an educational process. Mm -hmm. Right. But at the same time, they got to see results. So you have to have measurable outcomes. If you have if you don't have measurable outcomes, how do you know when you're done or if you're on the right path? You have no idea. That's the problem that I see with a lot of different forms of manual therapy. Right. It'll say we'll do two or three passes on this. Well, how do you know? Did you assess the tissue beforehand? No. Well, if you didn't assess the tissue, then how do you know what input to get it? Right. And then furthermore, how do you know when you're done? Mm -hmm. Right. I know when I'm done, when the central nervous system isn't going to give me anymore. And when I'm getting feedback from the athlete that, hey, this is this is where I'm at. Yeah. I'm not going to push it anymore. Right. It goes back to that's the big thing that I learned from you and and, and Lou. Right. It goes back to optimal. Mm -hmm. Right. So as much as I would want to, as a therapist, have them acquire full joint function, right? I know that I can't train them maximally or treat them maximally. I have to go in there and get whatever the body's willing to get, not be greedy, hang out there, train that range, because I know that, I know that after they see you, then that range gonna, is going to be uh, strengthened. It's going to be a trained range. And then I can start to acquire more and expand that range and the capacity through a process, right? Because everything is a process, process. Yep. right? And, but you have to get the athlete to start to believe in the process so that they can see results, right? And then that's when you create a lot of momentum in your training and all that other stuff too, mm -hmm. right? That then is going to be able to transfer over to the field. <clears throat> um, you said it's, it's a functional range release. Is yeah, the, yeah, FR yeah. release. The... The thing that worries me is that we're in a world where functional means a lot of things. And something like uh, FR release might get mistaken for 
functional movements. Was it FMT or FMS? Yeah, fu- yeah. Functional movement system. Yeah. And it's just like our industry and your industry. People yeah. get very confused because they're similar sounding things. Like right. functional means a lot of things to a lot of people. Exactly. Um, where is good resources if people want to learn a little bit more about that? Do you have uh, anything on your website? Or? Uh, I don't re- I mean, I have blog posts, but it's not in really regards to mm-hmm. FR. I mean, obviously, that's the thought process and the system that I apply. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe the uh, website is functionalanatomyseminars.com. And, um, uh, and Dr. Shivers, who's based out of Toronto, who is uh, – He's he's kind of uh, he's found his niche in baseball in Major League Baseball, yep. and so he's he's a uh, so him and uh, uh, Spina I would say although I don't know for sure are the main people that, mm-hmm. that that have come up and have really start to the main thing that I really like about the system is that it's constantly evolving. Yeah. So as we start to get more research, they evolve the system to match that research. Right, so me as a therapist, I can continue to treat and know that on the back end that they're doing all the research articles, yes. and then that they're figuring out applicable ways, which is basically what Lou did yeah. for all these years. And now what happens is it's the same thing where people can take that and actually apply it, even though. But like you said, it gets scary because I know with the I know with the people that I work with, they think that they're doing Westside method or yeah. whatever, right? But like you said prior, pre- previously, you don't know what you don't know, yeah. and a lot of people don't know. But if you want um, good information, I believe it's functional anatomy seminars and under FR. So if you're a manual therapist and you're interested in uh, this form of treatment, it's uh, Dr. Shivers is the one who's in charge of it. And he and, and the cool part about you, you know that he knows what he's doing because he goes and he trains the actual um, staffs of like MLB team, right? So he's actually going in like the individuals there, he's trying to ingrain the thought process, which is I think the same thing that Spina does mm-hmm. from a functional range conditioning perspective. Like look at the coach's coach. Yeah, exactly. So you're trying to, so you're kind of, the hierarchy is you're at the top and you're deli- and you're actually treating the people that are gonna apply the method, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> um, I was gonna say something else in regards to that, but uh, I can't recall but yeah but the main thing so if if you got an if you're an overhead athlete baseball quarterback whatever that stuff is that's where shivers is i mean he's he's kind of found that niche where a lot of uh baseball teams franchises seek him out to have him basically train their staffs and the best thing is this is not only backed up by research it's backed up by actual results correct and by because you're a very busy person. I, I know um, Shivers and Spina are very busy because if you weren't, if this wasn't based on actual results and principles, that wouldn't happen. Yeah, and that's the interesting part. It's just like I always, I always um, am skeptical of people that have a very large social media following, especially in manual therapy, mm-hmm. um, because one, it's kind of invasive to film you treating someone. I mean, mm-hmm. there's laws and, yeah. you know, you don't want to say like, hey, you have a really dysfunctional joint. Do you mind if I post <laughs> this yeah. for my whole entire, right? <laughs> Show me your shit hip joint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, but what I've found out is the individuals that I personally reach out to for information don't have large social media followings, mm-hmm. but are insanely busy. So even if they wanted to have a social media following, they're not going to have it because 
one, they're not getting their clients from there. Yeah. But two, they're working with high-level athletes, organizations, et cetera, and that's where they're getting. And, and so it's like those are the people. So I'm always skeptical uh, of individuals that have um, large social media followings because I'm like, oh, if, I wish I could be that busy on my social media, yeah. but I'm too busy treating people, you know what I mean, and, and trying to – do your continuing education and all that other stuff. Same thing with you. Yeah, I, I, right. I, I think there's a big, there's a big problem now. I, I'm not slamming anyone on social media, but in strength and conditioning, number one, the athlete comes first. The athlete is the star. We're just there to make them better. They're the one that got the genetics. We're not there on the field. We're not there playing the games. But uh, two, a lot of people get mistaken from. Uh, motivational style training so there's people out there that do a great job of trying to motivate people to get out train do that but these are not strength coaches and there's people out there who are think they're strength coaches but they're not and if you're seeking social media credibility to boost your business and boost what you are you should not be in this industry but sadly it's it's what it is what it is and we'll keep on chucking in the background because that's what we do but yeah, I'm with you. I, I'm very skeptical about people who have a lot of people following and that post millions of stuff every I don't know how they get time. I right. really don't. Yeah, I'm the same way, man. I'll see some of the stuff. And I mean, there's some people that I, I do think have the time. But like, you know, if you look at, uh, I mean, you guys have an intern that posts the majority of your guys' yeah. stuff, right? That's basically from the manuals and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Because everyone here is actually you know, I'm and, I, and it's the same thing. I don't want to slam social media, but I get so many people that come to me that have seen this and have seen that. And I got to spend 10 to 15 minutes basically explaining that, Hey, maybe that, that's not really the way it is. And maybe that person shouldn't be actually giving that out, but that's just the day. That's just the, that's, you got to embrace it. That's, it's that's a, the day that we live in. It's, but it's a huge tool. I don't get me wrong. Like but if we want to get out something that we think this is going to benefit people, we're going to put it out. But we're not going to put out anything that we just did spur the moment. Maybe this works. Maybe this looks cool. It doesn't. We try to put out as much factual and helpful information. And people might uh, perceive it as fringe or might perceive it as well, that's not going to work or they want to talk crap about it. But at least we're going to put it out there and let people decide. Um, rolling back in, finishing up this podcast. Have you any tips for recovery methods for athletes? Uh, Any, anything that, that stands out to you, just say, let's do a few top threes. Your top three methods of recovery. Top three methods of recovery. Um, I like, uh, from a joint perspective, uh, there's a component of the uh, FR system, which is a controlled articular rotation. Just v there's different levels that you can do it. It's very therapeutic for the joint. Uh, I mean, the body is very complex, so when we start to look at all the, the subsystems that make up the system, mm -hmm. I mean, we could go through all of that, but, you know, it starts to it starts to expand the ranges that the central nervous system is able to control. It's very therapeutic for the joint. You're getting motion into the joint, et cetera. I would say that's that would be number one. Uh, number two is you're the one that got me onto this, but the saunas. I love oh, for, for recovery. Yeah, so I mean, I I have a sauna, infrared sauna. I love the sauna. I mean, I think I know Dr. Rhonda Patrick yeah. did a ton of research. Uh, I found it online. I can't remember where. Uh, I love the sauna, and then uh, I mean, I would just say relax because I see so many. I work with so many athletes that are uh, uh, 
just worried about this, worried about that. And you know what I mean? And I think the other thing that people don't do is I don't know if they don't t- train t- strong, uh, hard enough and that they're still worried about stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But the other thing I would say is just relax, distress. You know, the, the, th- the other thing that you introduced me to is uh, sensory deprivation, mm-hmm. uh, the tanks. And dude, I love those tanks. Like that, that, that tank is awesome. And so I would say the main thing that, you, that people start to have to get in is start to de-stress, uh, get out from all the stimulus that's out there. I mean, we got our phones. I mean, everything's constant. So, you know, you get in one of those sensory deprivation tanks. I was just reading the book Stealing Fire. I don't know if you've read that. Not much yet. But you were the one that was telling me about how the Navy SEALs use mm-hmm. it and how it enhances their learning. I want to say it was like 490%, just, right? Yeah, yep. You know what I mean? And then a, I know a couple of the guys that we've referred to here uh, – uh, what's Pat's place called that we go uh, to? True Rest. True Rest. Yeah, so there's places here in Columbus called True Rest that uh, that's the one that, that we go to. Um, but it enhances their learning. So the Navy SEALs, I, I'm trying to think. It, the foreign languages, I think they came down from six months to six weeks or something ridiculous like yeah, that. Yeah, it's something crazy, you know, where it puts the brain in some sort of st- – I mean, I don't know. I think it feels great. It decreases the tone in the tissue. It's phenomenal. I refer a ton of people to there, but I'd say my top three, uh, the active component would be the, the controlled articular rotations mm-hmm. and then followed up by the sauna or, and actually I'd probably put the sensory deprivation tank before the sauna. Awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. What about you? What would you say? Me, I, I'm, I'm with you. I just think just learning how to relax. Right now we're in a stage where we actually have to learn how to relax. Yeah, and that's I, very it's, true. It's, it's very hard because we've got so much stimulus. And when you're a pro athlete, and I can only can talk from my experiences with pro athletes, is that you worry too much. Uh, and I understand that there's a lot of stuff out there, but what's going to happen is going to happen. And uh, saying that we have here is like, we're training to have you to be your best on your worst day, not on your best day. So once you're putting in all that training, you can relax. And a big thing is to learn how to read. Um, we got so far away from books. I think reading is huge. Yeah, and I read uh, all the time. All our, like all the athletes that we work with, and Lou is huge on this. I th- but as soon as I walked in here, he had four books in front of me. Yeah, and, me too. And yeah. um, Book of the Five Rings, like you have to learn how to read and read for enjoyment and read for education. There's two differences because you can burn. I, I burnt myself out in strength and conditioning style manuals to where I found a new love with war style manuals. Or I went to uh, General J. Mattis's reading list and yeah. got all these books. But... I've learned how to relax to reading. Right. Um, that's one thing. Uh, sauna and sensory deprivation like that. The float tank has been the biggest thing for me. And, and we're going to bring Pat in and talk more about that. And But um, I'm going to do some blog posts on it. But I think the first time I did it, I'm like, this is not going to work. You, 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 you get in that tank for an hour and I'll get my yeah, head, for, my for, head's racing. And I'm like, no, I'm, I can't handle this. Yeah, for people that don't know, it kind of explains. I know Joe Rogan's kind of made him slightly popular but it kind of explained because you were the one that was like you got to try this yeah well when uh i was because there's loper that got me involved in okay that. yeah yeah yeah. and um it was actually we had um uh, rob and jake were down and they wanted to to try it out and i refused to do it that day and I, and I, but <laughs> then i met pat and then from it, pat was like you got to try it you got to try it well i'm like oh you got to try our machine so he came down him and his wife lovely lovely woman uh I tested out our machines, went on the ATP and everything. They're like, this is awesome. Came back again. I'm like, well, I got to go. <laughs> so I went. And you go into this tank. I guess it's about 12 inches of water. You got a 1,000 pounds of Epsom salts in there. And it looks like a 
base aged egg, but you get this <laughs> you get this whole room to yourself. Yeah, it's a you suite. Shop. Yeah, it's waterfall. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I couldn't believe how nice the suites were. And, but. Um, and then you you get into the tank and you close the door and there's lights on there and this this meditation music comes on for ten minutes. Well, you put these earplugs in too oh, because yeah. you're yeah yeah. Uh, and don't forget that because I did. And <laughs> but um, and then the lights go off. You can turn off the lights, which I did. And for the first time, I heard nothing. And you can't see nothing. Your body floats in this water, and you hit off the sides, but you eventually level out. And um, the I guess the temperature of the water is the same as your skin, so you 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 float into it, and then you start thinking. And I didn't realize how much I thought until I got in there. And I'm like, how do you turn off this thought process? Because uh, I'm naturally, I have all the athletes I work with, with work with Lou, work with Westside. So I'm thinking about, oh, and then I'm like, I got no idea how to. And Lou is a big person on meditation. And that, that man can go into meditative state whenever <laughs> he wants. Um, and now I see the importance of it. But it took me to my third time floating to where I'm like, Okay, there is there is something well, to this. We'll see, and I think the tank constrains you. Yeah, you're forced to to be in there. You know, where a lot of people are like, yeah, I'll try and meditate and try this breathing podcast or blah blah blah, right? But it's totally different when you're constrained in the tank. Yeah, you're sitting there floating around. I mean, it is relaxing. Like for me, I think I uh, like you. You're you're 24 seven, man. You're you're everywhere, yeah. right? You know what I mean. So it's like for you, I can see where it would be harder. Because I know when I came out and you were there, that's like the first time, you know, we have to travel all over the place. But that's yeah. the first time I've legit seen you like de-stressed and relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, well, uh, I'm plus it forced you to be with yourself. Yeah. And I don't want to be around me anyway. <laughs> but when you're in that tank, you got no choice. Yeah. Um, but and I, I think a, a problem with it because they're advertised as float spas. And it's not. Uh, and I, I think and I talk with Pat about it. It, sh- it should be float restoration. I mean, the Columbus crew here, uh, they, they signed a the big deal team, with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do believe, I think, OSU got that. I mean, the, yeah, OSU got their own. Yeah. Because I've, yeah, I've talked to a couple of guys trying to refer them there, and OSU's got their own. It's, it's, it's huge, and it's, it's not on the – it's low-key at the moment, but it, it's gaining popularity. Well, but if you get away from the spa aspect and you try it, and you can try it once, uh, I recommend and just to do it at least three times. This is no plug. We have not been asked to do this, but – it's been the biggest thing for uh, it's you just have well, to try it and then plus you got to figure if the navy seals are doing it i mean you got guys that are totally time constrained and if they're making time in their schedule to do it i'm going to make time in my schedule to do it especially when they start to see you know it's it's not like they're trying to make it work that's yeah. just the results of what they've done and so that's the reason why i'm a big component of it and they're in there for i think uh, 3 to 4 hours yeah and, and you got to build a tolerance to this to where you learn how to turn off your thoughts. And when you start to do that, you start to actually solve. I think your, your critical thinking improves. Yeah, because you're not overthinking. Exactly. You're just thinking. And there's no social media. There's yeah. no phone. There's, yeah. there's nobody. Well, so, see, that's the same thing. I can't recall exactly what it's called, but it's like when you're in the shower and it finally comes to you because you're not thinking about it. So yeah. everything starts to come. So it's like when you're floating around in that tank, you know what I mean, and you're trying to relax, that's when you're, you, you're going to start to do probably deeper thinking. And I, don't, I wish I knew more of the science behind it, but that's probably what they're talking about with the different brain waves, how we had to watch that yeah. video. Just how they get, we'll, we'll get Pat in. He'll, he'll, yeah, yeah, exactly. He'll, 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 he'll in. Um, touched on reading top three books. Uh, uh, any books that you think people will get? Um, top three books. I would say number one is Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Uh, 
Yep. You got that? Right yeah. There. Yep. Yeah. So that that's big. Doctor Shivers referred that book to me. Um, I like that book a lot. Um, I'm trying to think because I, I read a ton, so it's hard for me to start to narrow down. Um, I would say, um, man, I'm trying to think. There's a really good one. It's called Thinking in Systems, which is another book. Uh, so it starts to uh, it starts to uh, it'll change the way that you think as far as you'll start to think from more of a systems perspective instead of that linear thinking, right? Like yep. progressive overload. Instead, you'll start to think more conjugate, more wave stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. What is another one? I don't know. You go. Maybe I'll think of another one. I, I really like the the Matt got me onto this book, The Art of Learning. Oh yeah, yeah. you had me. That that's yeah. a really good, good book, book too. I, I like yeah. That. Um, that and uh, Thinking Fast Thinking Slow is a great book. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just throw in one there from our field, which I, I, people don't read enough of. And I actually forgot about it because the coaches, uh, that's what I liked about the uh, University of Akron. They got me, every every one of their staff and interns asked me, what's your top three books? I mean, it's been such a long time when people ask me, what's your top three books? Yeah. Um, but Facts and Fallacies... Of yeah. Fitness by Mel Sif. Yeah. That book is, it's it's a book that you can literally pick up and take out some bits and put back down. It's exactly. not like super training. Yeah. Nowhere near super training. Yeah. But the information is huge. Well, you gave me that book. Yeah, I've read that book. That's a really good book. I would say uh, one of my favorite authors is Robert Greene, and he wrote a book called Mastery. Mm-hmm. And I think I like Mastery a lot because, uh, well, Actually, now that I'm starting to think about it, probably my favorite book is Anti-Fragile by Talib. Uh, but uh, Mastery, I think, is a really good book uh, because it kind of shows you the process of it takes to actually master something and how masters never really think that they've mastered every, anything. Like, look yeah. at Lou. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're just constantly working at it, right? Well, right now, I, I know. He's at home reading and writing. Yeah, and so yeah. The, that's the thing. There's, there's also a good article. It's called The Mundanity of Excellence. Right, and, it, and it, it's it's a short reading that's maybe only like eighteen pages, mm-hmm. but it's a study on swimmers and what makes swimmers good. <clears throat> and it's like, what makes Lou good? What makes you good? Well, it's because you enjoy the work. So what people think is they think that you know these athletes that are, let's say they're in the league, right? Like, oh man, these workouts got to be so grueling, et cetera. Or like someone like you, oh, I got to read all these books. I got to travel here, meet this guy, work with these guys, right? But what it shows is that these high-level swimmers, right, they followed them around for, I think, at least a year, right, is they, they actually enjoyed that stuff. So what people think, you know, so, like, people may see all the books that I read, and they'll be like, well, why don't you spend your time watching this show on Netflix or that? Well, because I enjoy this. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's like what one person perceives as not pleasurable or they wouldn't spend their time, that's probably the reason why they're doing that and you're doing this. Yeah. Does that make sense? So... So I would I like the book Mastery. I like Anti Fragile. Uh, I like Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And I've already forgot the other book that. Well, you said The Art of Learning, mm-hmm. which is that's a really good book. But and and I think uh, I caught myself in it because I got used to reading so much textbooks that um, not that I lost the like to read, but I had to reteach myself how to read. Yeah. And Lou is the biggest thing that Lou has done for me. He's taught me how to learn. And how, how to how to study, but he taught me actually how, how to read a book, how to read a textbook, and how to implement it. And um, I think people should spend a little bit more time on that and a little less time on their phones. Yeah, exactly. Um, John, 
pleasure having you on. I hope you all enjoyed this. This is our first. This is really a test podcast to see how this new system worked out for us. We're going to have Louis here next week, and we're going to be uh, going over 40-yard, um, how to decrease your times, and how to uh, train around that. This has been the Westside Bo- uh, Podcast. Thank you, and goodbye.